Welcome to the Bethel Church Podcast. Each week you'll be able to check in for our messages from Sunday and other material. We hope that our messages encourage you in your walk and daily faith with Jesus. Make sure to check out our website, BethelStratford.org. Um, 
that's on. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. So some of you might be a little confused by this on the screen, but this is my story first, and I will get to the practical how-to stuff after you hear how I got here. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and I felt called, whatever you want to call it, to go to Bible college at about 17 years old. After graduating from Bible college with my three-year diploma in theology, I then moved to Ottawa in order to be closer to my long-distance boyfriend, now husband, uh, Kirk. I then earned my early childhood education diploma while I was there, and two weeks after that graduation, we got married. So that was nearly 20 years ago, actually next week is our anniversary, and we're still in love, we're still best friends, and we're still far, far, far perfect. Um, we have four children. Our eldest, Lily, is 18, Russell's 16, and our twins, Annie and Audrey, are 14 years old. It's a lot of teenagers. <laughs> One place. I've lived most of my life in Brampton, Ontario, and that's where we've also now lived for 17 years. My husband is a Brampton firefighter, and he also runs a heating and air conditioning business of his own. So basically, he has two jobs, and I stay home running our busy household, among a few other things I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to rewind just for a minute, back to 2001, when we first moved back to Brampton from Ottawa. I was expecting Russell, our second baby. Things were going pretty well. We bought a home. We found a home church. I got a job in the Peel District School Board as a special needs teaching assistant. We had a 17-month-old toddler, girl, and a brand new baby boy. So life was busy, but it was good, and we were very happy. I was close to my family there. Things were going really well. A year later, we found out we were expecting twins. And I was really excited. And my husband, he was a little shocked, to say the least. He's a bit more of a planner than me. Not that, you know, I didn't plan anything. It just sort of happened. And actually, he thought I was kidding about this ultrasound picture. Now, don't think that he's a bad guy. He didn't come to this ultrasound, which sounds terrible, but it was our third baby. And we thought, I was like, it's fine. You're not going to see anything. I'm only like 12 weeks. Um, probably can't even see it on the screen. And I let him, I said, just go ahead to your basketball game. It's fine. <laughs> so he was going to go. And I phoned him once I found out. Of course, I'm by myself. And then it takes twice as long, by the way. And the ultrasound technician at the end of the day is not too happy about that. Um, <laughs> so I told him, and he actually thought I was kidding. He's like, this isn't your picture. And actually, before that, he looked at this picture, and he just looked down, and he was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> so I said, well, there's the head, and there's the other head. <laughs> and he just... He was more than dumb. <laughs> anyway, he's not a bad guy. Um, but when the twins arrived, Lily was three and a half, Russell was just two, and uh, so here we were with two newborns. We figured things will get easier, right? This too shall pass, people said. <laughs> this is just a season. We had no idea that our lives could actually become more busy 
more stressful and more chaotic. In January of 2004, when Annie and Audrey were just over four months old, the unimaginable happened. Annie had her first seizure. Now looking back, I know there were signs of seizures even before that, but I didn't know what was happening at the time. After a CT scan and waiting at SickKids Hospital for a few days, we were ushered into this large hospital boardroom. And sitting across from many doctors and nurses, we received Annie's diagnosis. Tuberous sclerosis complex. I'd never heard of it. Kirk had never heard of it. I'm sure most of you have never heard of it. I remember the neurologist slid this um, piece of paper across this bar, uh, big boardroom table, and on it she printed out some stuff that we could maybe expect to happen to Annie. It was just some information she printed from the internet. And I was a little relieved at the time to find out that this disorder had a very broad spectrum. There was hope that Annie would be typical after all and maybe be at the mild end of the spectrum. We were really shaken up, but hopeful and probably in denial. Most of what I heard in that meeting went over my head, but there was one thing that stuck out to me. They said it was a genetic disorder. You see, no one in that room knew that Annie was an identical twin. So when I told them, their faces dropped and they kept asking me if I was sure they were identical. A couple weeks later, Audrey began also having seizures and the diagnosis soon followed. Audrey too has tuberous sclerosis complex, or TSC as I will refer to it. So here we were, 29 years old, married less than six years, four kids under four years old. Life was a whirlwind as it was, never mind dealing with seizures, developmental delays, and possibly even autism down the road. Tuberous sclerosis complex is a disorder which affects a person's ability to suppress tumor growth. So the result is that benign tumors grow on various organs in their bodies. Annie and Audrey have tubers all over their brains, and in the words of the neurologist, they have way too many to even count. They also have this characteristic, can't see it too much on this picture, but they have this facial redness across the bridge of their nose and their cheeks and their chin. And they have other skin tumors on their bodies as well. Audrey had some in her heart which have shrunk, which is typical, and some in her eyes. One of the hardest things for us at the time was that Excuse me. It seemed as if no one had heard of this disorder. Even nurses and doctors had limited knowledge of it. I decided then that I didn't want to know everything there was to know. I didn't want to know the worst case scenarios. To be honest, I was just really afraid. I just wanted to take care of my babies the best that I could. However, we did quickly have to learn about seizures, how to recognize them, how to time them, when to call the doctor, when to call 911. We began giving anticonvulsant medication three to five times daily to each baby. We hired respite care workers. We relied on my mom and other family members for help. We prayed to God to help us, to give us strength, wisdom, and we asked our church families to pray, which they did. 
We were also warned by the neurologist to watch out for something called infantile spasms. It's a very severe type of seizure. And Annie and Audrey did have infantile spasms. <laughs> Initially, they were started on a newer drug, which was working wonders for many TSC patients all over the world. However, after two weeks, we found out it wasn't working for them, and they had to be started on a steroid treatment immediately. So that summer, they were treated with ACTH steroids. And we watched as the nurses gave our babies needles in their legs every second day for five weeks. We watched as our beautiful babies became um, irritable, gained weight, developed pimples, and had very low immune systems. We watched as they did less and less developmentally, and all their milestones vanished. Audrey was hospitalized three times in those five weeks for various infections, and she had the worst seizure that I've ever seen, lasting for over half an hour and involved foaming at the mouth. It was terrifying, and I felt helpless. Both girls were generally miserable, and they couldn't even sit up at a year old. Thankfully, the treatment was a huge success, and the infantile spasms were stopped relatively quickly. Sadly, children with TSC who have infantile spasms are generally more intellectually delayed in the long run. It might seem strange, but it was at this time I went on a retreat. And I started wondering about my call to ministry that I thought I'd received less than 10 years before that. I was on a women's retreat, and I wrestled with God. I remember praying, so what about my calling God? Did I imagine that? Obviously now my life has taken these unexpected twists and turns, and I have more important things to deal with, right? That was pretty much my prayer. I was telling him what it was. <laughs> But he assured me over the course of that weekend that this life was no surprise to him, that he was willing to carry this enormous load and give us light to see our, our way, and that he still wanted to use me for his purpose. However, a year later, at about 18 months old, Annie and Audrey still functioned in most ways as infants. It was at this time they also started suffering from sleep disorder. I don't know if it seems like it to you, but to me it seemed like there was just like one thing after another. And you're getting the short version of this story. <laughs> I desperately asked the neurologist for an answer and for help. And he was honest. He gave us no reassurance that the sleep disorder would ever go away. And he said it was just typical for people with neurological dysfunction. That wasn't really the answer I was looking for, and I was confused. I was frustrated, I was exhausted, and I was angry with God. Our toddlers were not progressing well. They slept little, they had seizures, they were obsessive compulsive, which were also the beginning signs that they might have autism. One of the most heartbreaking things for me was at the time, even up to three years old, if you can imagine, they didn't prefer me over anyone else. They didn't really seem to know who I was. This was not what I expected my life to be. 
and the season wasn't ending. <laughs> I mentioned I was confused. Well, I'm a Christian. I prayed. My Christian friends had prayed. My family, our other church families. The pastor had come. He anointed, anointed them with oil. He laid hands on them. The elders had come. They prayed. And to me at the time, none of that seemed to be making any difference at all. And I had had enough. After all, a person needs to sleep, don't they? At the very least, I needed to be rested if I was going to do this impossible task. How could God expect me to take care of my two typical children, and now my two children with special needs, if I'm too tired and unable to cope with everything that was going on? I remember one night in particular, and I'm not proud of this, but I have to be honest with you, I actually stuck my fist up in the air, and I cried and I screamed at him, and I said, this is all I can handle. And immediately it stopped. I stopped, and I opened up my fist, and I began to receive the truth. And that's when God stepped in, and he led me here to his word. He reminded me that he's a God who keeps his word. He reminded me that he loves me, he loves my family, and he, he reminded me that he didn't want to see me fail. That he's always faithful, and he still wanted to use me for his purposes. So how did he do that? Well, for me, he started bringing scriptures to my mind. And when I talk to kids about this, I tell them, this is why we learn Bible verses in Sunday school. Because all of a sudden you start to remember things that you learned when you were a child. And the first one that he brought to my mind was one I'm sure many of you know, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. But you know, I looked at that scripture and I kept reading past the end there. And it says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And then this verse, Luke 12, 6, popped into my head from a God Rocks video, I think. And it says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? God was taking me through this ongoing season by reminding me of a few key things that I'm going to share with you right now. And the first one is that God keeps his promises. I realized then that I had a choice to make. I could either keep whining and complaining to God about how hard this season was, or I could actually decide to stop being angry and look for ways to use my wakeful times for something good. Now that is a God thought, because who wants to do that? <laughs> In my ongoing season, I chose to give Jesus my worries, my fears, and my broken heart. I also chose to turn on the kettle at four in the morning and just make some tea and resign myself to the fact that I was going to be up for a while. I chose to connect with people on the internet, and this is before social media, really. It was, I don't even know how. Um, 
But it was with other families, just one mom in particular, whose son has, had also been diagnosed with TSC. I chose to stay connected to my church family. But among the many choices that I made in that season, probably the most important one, and this is before everybody was doing it, that I knew of, I chose to be thankful. And I started writing things down, little things that I was thankful for, little but big things. I just started making thankful lists. And the result really changed me. I became less focused on the injustice and difficulty of my situation, and more focused on the goodness and faithfulness of God. It seemed as though there was this miracle happening inside of me. I began to supernaturally experience joy in my circumstance. Nobody had been healed, but I was experiencing joy. So the second way the Lord was taking me through this ongoing season was that he was changing my perspective. I realized God doesn't make mistakes. He designed our family just the way it was supposed to be, and his design wasn't flawed. By the time they were five years old, Annie and Audrey had both been diagnosed with autism. Even now at 14, like in this picture, both Annie and Audrey are still in diapers and they show little sign of toilet training. Audrey still only eats puree baby foods, mostly just pablum. We're still forcing a cocktail of pills down their throats five times a day just to keep seizures under control. And just last fall, we added an antidepressant, anxiety medication, which has helped immensely. Although that's very normal for us and has been happening since they were five months old, it's a task that I really never find gets easier, and my mind often goes to, I wonder what these drugs are doing to them, and will they perform in the future? My girls will never outgrow TSC, nor will they ever live independently. They have yearly MRIs to monitor the growth of brain tubers. In the future, there are concerns of kidney or lung disease, general discomfort or pain, which they can't really tell us about well. And then there are the meltdowns and anxiety problems, aggression, the many appointments with numerous specialists, the explaining to strangers and people who've never heard of autism, much less TSC, why my 14-year-olds are acting like toddlers, having tantrums or being disruptive, walking in circles with iPads at the back of the church. Most personal hygiene tasks are a bit of a struggle, and we do them all for our girls. This is a lot to handle, and not the mildly affected diagnosis that I had prayed for and hoped for. Life really wasn't turning out as I'd expected, and the season is still ongoing. But we are not without hope, and we're not without help. You see, the third way that God was taking me through this ongoing season is by giving me a gift. The gift of vision and passion. I kept thinking about Jeremiah 29:11, and it was bothering me, so I started asking God some hard questions. I said, what hope do people with severe cognitive disabilities have? Are their lives valuable? Do they need to be in church the way my other kids should be in church and learning? 
Is this verse meant for them the way we all think it's meant for us? For my twins who can't comprehend such an idea, is this for them? I've discovered that all people are valuable, no matter their abilities or their disabilities. They all bear the image of Almighty God, created by Him to bring Him glory. My life's mission, in part, has become speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. I've been given this gift of what the church should look like and a passion to equip leaders to do disability ministry more effectively, to encourage Christians to step out of their comfort zones and go beyond accommodation, to seek out those who are missing or forgotten simply because they haven't been invited, accommodated, or missed at all. This is the ministry that God's given me and many others to do, and I want to do my part well. Colossians 3.23 clearly says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. So whether I'm speaking, changing adult-sized diapers, publishing articles, I'm to work hard as if God were my boss, because he is. In closing, I just want to share this little story with you. Just before the summer, in 2014, I began reading and researching what courage really means and what the Bible says about it. That summer, we spent time at our cottage, which is on a property of a on the property of a Christian camp, where we can, it's a place where we can get away for spiritual rest and renewal. And this one week we were there. Uh, well, generally there are services. I don't know if you've ever been to a camp like that. There's services morning and night. And my husband had gone home to work a 24-hour shift at the fire station. My mom and some other family members were there with me that week, so they were helping me out. And when the pastor early in the week announced that there was going to be a healing service, I was like, oh, maybe we should go. Let's, let's see. So I'm not here to debate with you about healing services, although this is Pentecostal Church, so you're probably okay with that. Um, all I know is I wanted to go, and I wanted my kids to go if we could make it happen. It doesn't always happen. Um, so Annie and Audrey were really happy as we entered the building that night. They were always very happy to go inside. The music was loud and vibrant, as it usually is in a Pentecostal camp meeting. At the start of the service, the preacher enthusiastically declared, if you feel like you're getting healed or the Holy Spirit's touching you and you want to run these aisles, then you just go ahead and run these aisles. Wow. I had no intention of running any aisles. <laughs> um, we sat near the back as usual, while we kind of stood, Andy and Audrey stand a lot. And at one point, they started imitating the preacher. And he was very loud, so I thought, well, maybe it's okay. I decided to let it go, since they were really no louder than someone who might be shouting, hallelujah, or amen, brother. And, and that happens too at Pentecostal camp meetings, right? I even took the time to text a few friends who I knew would pray. And I didn't tell them exactly where I was. I just said, I'm in this healing service, and I feel like Annie and Audrey are really engaged and 
the Holy Spirit is present or something like that, right? I said, just pray. I was really excited for the final altar time and prayer time that I knew was going to happen at the end of the preaching. And it seemed only moments away as he was coming in to land the sermon. I was kind of nervous and I felt like, should I leave? I don't know. Is this too much? But then I talked myself into staying seemed like they were so connected with the Holy Spirit, and who was I to remove them from that? I figured it was a safe place. I was wrong. Someone complained about the twins being there, and wondered why I didn't take them to the soundproof crying room located at the back of the sanctuary. It was meant, it was designed for babies and their parents when had no childcare for them. Well, I never considered taking them there because A, they weren't crying, B, they were 11 years old and not babies, and C, they didn't really fit in the baby equipment that was provided in that room. I was quickly reminded once again that they just don't fit anywhere. In disbelief and with unsteady hands, I gathered up my 11-year-old's things, a diaper bag, snack bag, iPads. I burst into tears as I leaned over the shoulder of an old Bible college friend and I said, I'll see you later. We've just been kicked out of the healing service. Rejection by those in the house of God was new to me and was also one of the most painful experiences of my life. One which I know many families with disabilities or family members who have disabilities have faced or often face. And you know, I wanted to run from the church, but I ran to the comforting arms of Jesus instead. The next day, in my deep sadness, <laughs> I cried, I prayed, I listened, I laid in my hammock. <laughs> As I thought about what had happened the night before in that healing service, the Holy Spirit was so close to me and told me, you know, I felt like you just needed to experience what this really felt like. The pain of such rejection. So that you can more fully relate to anyone who's been rejected. I felt like I'd effectively taken one for the special needs parents team. Oh, and God also reminded me, you did ask me for a sign. Which I had. Earlier in the week, I found myself in a service all by myself. Sometimes that happens. And I remember sitting there alone in this pew, and I said, God, do people really need this education and equipping for disability ministry like I think you told me they do? Or am I doing all this studying and, and training for nothing? I found out that sometimes signs and answers to prayer come in unexpected ways. And I think sometimes they hurt or they sting a little bit. My passion for disability ministry was refueled that week, and I knew I was on the right path. Through time in the Word of God and in my hammock that next day, I was comforted, reassured, and on my way to having my heart mended. Later on that evening, the camp director came to visit and apologized for all that had happened. She then asked me if I would consider sharing a little bit about our life and our family with the, uh, the leaseholders in a couple days. There was an upcoming leaseholder meeting. 
And my first thought was, nope, absolutely not. <laughs> I, was, I was still wanting to kind of run away. But once again, I heard the still small voice of the Holy Spirit saying, take courage. And then I thought about how a teenage mom whose five-year-old son had autism and squealed very loudly and ran away from her had approached me earlier that week and asked me, how do you get your kids to behave so well in church? And then I thought of the many people who throughout the week and weeks before have, have often come up to me and said how, how glad they are to see us there, how much work it must be for us to get there. And as I mentioned just a few months prior to that incident, I'd already been reading and researching and writing about some questions I was having about courage. What is courage and why do we need it? What does the Bible say about courage? Is courage a fruit of the spirit? I wanted to understand courage better if I was going to live out this life and mission I was called to. So this was my time to take courage and be courageous. I did share our story with those Christians that summer, and we have continued to educate and make some changes, including the creation of an exceptional needs room. I don't know how well you can see it. In place of the crying babies room. <laughs> Not that we have to go there, but it's an option for us to go. If if I feel we want, we need to. So, for real, in closing, this journey has not been easy and continues to challenge me every single day. But this is the journey that God has put me on, and I trust Him completely. I've experienced true joy when my children with special needs learn something new, when they play like other children play. And I've also experienced true grief over the loss of dreams, the lack of typical family events, and all that I had expected this life to be. But God gave me dreams for the future, and even an excitement about what might lie ahead for us. In 2010, I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to be vulnerable, to share my story, and so I started writing and had my first article published in Testimony Magazine in early 2011. Having that article really uh, published really gave me the courage to apply for the Bachelor of Theology completion program through Master's College and Seminary. And by the spring of 2015, I had finished that degree. Again, the Holy Spirit kept whispering, keep going, trust and obey. And I found myself applying to a master's program, which I'd researched even before I finished my bachelor. In May of last year, I graduated with my Master of Science in Education concentration on disability studies and disability ministry. I honestly didn't know what the long-term goal of all this was when I began my education journey, but I couldn't ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit to simply trust and obey. I kept focused on the God-given vision of equipping leaders in, this, in the area of disability ministry, and the Lord just keeps opening doors for me to share our story at retreats, conferences and other church events like this one, all with the focus on helping the church become a place where everyone has a place of belonging. Because those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think less honorable, we treat with special honor. So that's it for my story part. Um, I'm gonna move on to... Um, 
want to pull out your, well, you probably have your handout, so. So, along the way, I have, oh, actually, I'm going to pull up the proper PowerPoint. If you want to stretch or do anything, go ahead. I just have to switch this to my other PowerPoint. Did everybody get any of this? Oh, yeah, they're in the hallway. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk to you about the practical aspects of ministry with people and families affected by disability. So all of that is leading us to this. Because what I've found, and maybe many of you already know this because you're in church leadership positions, or your volunteers, or your pastors, um, is that this isn't something we learned. Well, I didn't learn about this in Bible college. And it's uh, there, there are some key things that we can do, and strategies, and so I'm going to lead you through this. Um, let me just check. Okay. We have lots of time. Um, so you have all that information there, and there's some stuff I'm going to to that, of course. But there's a couple questions that I hope to answer for you today. The first one is how, how can church leaders support volunteers as they seek to include people with special needs? And there's a lot of different terms that people use. You can say special needs, disabilities, exceptionalities is a new buzzword in kids ministry. I don't know if you know which one you guys say. Um, you can use whichever one you want, as far as I'm concerned. So how can we can we um, support our volunteers? So this is pastors, uh, leaders. As we seek to include people with special needs in our class and in, in the life of the church. And the second part to that question is how do you, as volunteers, support the parents or the caregivers of the people with special needs? and the people specifically. So I'm gonna give you also some practical things you can do in that area. And the second question I hope to answer for you is what are some creative ways to involve people with impairments in the congregation or the class? I'm assuming some of you are kids ministry leaders, so you, do you have Sunday school or kids ministry, kids zone or whatever they call it? <laughs> okay, I don't know, do they say Sunday school anymore? Sunday school when I went to Sunday school. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you some key practical strategies with that as well. Because the hardest thing probably that you're going to come in contact with is when kids or people are displaying challenging behaviors, right? Um, but I want to just focus on this for a minute. And I'll ask this out loud if you guys want to just say out loud what you think. What do you think is the one thing that I will say all, but most families affected by disability want from church. What would you think is the one thing? Inclusion. Inclusion. Acceptance. Yes. Acceptance. Exactly. You are right. <laughs> so, I love this quote by John Swinton, and it says, to be included, you just need to be present. To belong, you need to be missed. Let that sink in for a second. 
That's an amazing, amazing idea. Um, there are times when people with autism or other social deficits maybe um, make it difficult for leaders, uh, or it, it becomes challenging for you as leaders. I mean, they make your life difficult. I mean, it's 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 a hard thing that we face, right? Which is why we're here partly. So in our minds, we have to decide first, and this is your only fill in the blank. I think this is your only fill in the blank. We have to decide either we think the person is a problem or the person has a problem. So when you think about that, um, it really changes the way you respond to people, doesn't it? So as leaders, some key things you want to convey to a family is that we want this person here. Whether we are able to, to manage them, help them, include them, whatever, we want them here. But it's okay to talk about the difficulties as well. So a second thing you want to let families know is that we've noticed they're having some difficulty in the class or coping. Um, and I'm going to talk about when you talk about that, maybe not right at pickup time. Um, a little bit later I'll talk about that. A third thing is that we're, you want to say to them, we're going to do our best to figure this out and make this a good experience. Make Sunday school successful for this person. Another thing you want to convey is, um, or say, is do you think we could schedule a time to talk about how he's coping or she's coping or managing or doing in this class? Um, and maybe think about some supports that might benefit him or her. And another thing, and this is especially for kids ministry people, is you can offer that questionnaire. So obviously this is something that your pastor would probably do, and maybe it's something you just give to every parent so people don't feel centered out. But that questionnaire, if you want to look at it, and you can tailor it to however you want for your own church, um, there's probably a bit of talk on there about having a calming down room, and you might have to develop that before you can offer that, obviously. But the key thing is to be warm and positive when asking a parent or caregiver about their child or their client. And I'm glad they're, okay, you mostly all look a bit younger than me, but some people will know who this is, and he's probably the most warm and positive person or face that I could think of. Um, so be positive about it. Even though you might have gotten like your hair pulled out that Sunday morning, or, and I'm not just saying that lightly, I, I'm, I, it happens to me. My own kids have some aggressive issues. And secondly, you also want to be sensitive. This is a boring slide, not too many um, pictures here, but there's many reasons why a person functions as they do. And the following is kind of just uh, a list of some possible impairments someone might have. And this isn't uh, to say that we need to go around diagnosing people or, oh, he's doing that, so he must be this or whatever. Um, but it, it's just to get you to always be thinking, what is their story? Or is there a story? Or not to just jump to a conclusion, because we can all do that, right? So I'm not going to go through all those things. We'll talk about them a little more in detail and how we respond to those things. Um, but that's for you to take home, and it's just to sort of help you see there are a lot of things that could be going on in people. Something churches can do to help 
leaders is exactly what you're doing here, is to offer tools and uh, you can attend conferences. There's some resources over there you can have a look at if you want. Um, excuse me. Um, so use, uh, you can also find out who in your congregation has some experience with people with disabilities. And maybe they don't want to work eight days a week, but I'm sure they would be okay. Like I was a special needs teaching assistant, not that I was, you know, I mean, I was 20 and um, I didn't have a lot of experience, but I had some knowledge of things. And so you have people maybe even in your congregation that can help you navigate this a little bit. Something else to be aware of when we're in leadership is something called person first language. And have any of you heard of this idea before? Okay, so person-first language is very important because our language influences people around us. And it influences the way that we think about other people as well. So on your sheet, I think you guys have it worded a little better than what I have here, but um, so you want to always say the person first. That's why it's called that. So instead of saying that special needs kid or that autistic want to say that boy with autism or even better if you know his name maybe you would say Thomas who loves to dance at the back of the church with his iPad you don't even have to say the label maybe the man with cerebral palsy or even better Ron who loves to drink coffee and who walks with a cane instead of that short guy who has CP and I know it's probably offensive to you some of the way I'm saying these things, but I hear it so often, people say, oh, well, she's a special, or they're special, or they're special needs. Well, they're not that. They are a person first, right? So basically, the more time you spend with people, the better you're going to get to know them for their traits rather than just their impairments. Okay, so next... I'm going to move on to busting some myths about autism. And maybe some of you are in this field and you know about all this stuff, and maybe this is ridiculous to you that I even bring this up, but these are some common myths that people hold about autism. We know the causes and cures for autism. I think someone must email me almost once a week asking me if I know about cannabis oil. And yes, I know about it. <laughs> And I don't know everything about it, and there's a whole reason, you know, I'm not for or against it, I know people on it, I know kids on it, and, but it's just like, it's, we don't know the causes and cures for autism. My children happen to have a medical diagnosis, TSC is the leading known medical cause for autism. 60% of people with TSC are going to have autism. So they actually have a cause, I know their cause. But I don't, we don't know everyone's cause. Um, the second myth is that all people with autism have an intellectual impairment. That is also not true. But also, not everyone is right, man. <laughs> and we have to watch what we see on the media. And sometimes those movies are not the best um, way for us to learn because they make us think everybody is a savant. And they're not. So the third one is that all people with autism basically behave the same. 
Also a myth, although there are some common characteristics that some people with autism might have. And number four, autism is caused by a lack of discipline and poor parenting. And you may think that's ridiculous, that nobody would think that. However, in the 1950s, there was um, a doctor who said he was an expert who actually turned out to be a fraud, but he, without social media, got this idea going and very widely accepted that it was because of a mother's lack of love for her child that her child was autistic. And they called them refrigerator mothers. And that's only in the 1950s and 60s. And I know to us it sounds like absurd, but there are still people today who kind of were brought up with that idea and you can't help it. Your parents maybe were afraid of it or whatever or believed it. And the poor mothers, those are the mothers who are working the hardest probably to find help for their kids. So those are just some myths that I just want us to kind of, um, kind of dispel. People with autism are in our communities, uh, people with cognitive dis uh, impairments, people with other disabilities. So it only makes sense that they're going to come to our churches especially because our churches are now physically much more acceptable, uh, accessible. So I'm going to offer you now some practical strategies. And a lot of these are going to help you when you're facing some difficult or challenging situations with people with various uh, cognitive impairments, autism, social deficits. I know I'm throwing around all these big words, but it's... Um, it's important. Okay, so some key, this is probably one of the most important ones, and you all know this, you need to be confidential with the parents and the caregivers and with other church staff when discussing a situation. So say you have a situation, right? Whatever it is, somebody's um, tearing apart a room or whatever on Sunday or they pulled your hair or they kicked you or whatever it is, um, this is where I would say, don't do it at pickup time. Because parents, if you have to go get the parent, obviously it's different if something is really, really going wrong. Um, but they just want to get out there, and so you let them go and say, you know what, we're going to talk later in the week, I'll call you. And be caring about it. Um, because they, they've probably had to leave many places if this is something that, that their child struggles with or their client, it could be an adult. Um, they're already afraid that you're going to tell them not to come back. So basically, you want to keep the questionnaire information confidential as well. And obviously, if you're the teacher in that class, you are the pastor, and you guys can talk about, okay, how are we going to make this, you know, be prepared for whoever it is that's coming. Um, and that's fine, but as you are with any anyone's information, medicine or allergies or whatever it is, obviously allergies sometimes we post those on reasons um, but you just want to keep things private and just keep that in mind okay moving on we have 12 so I better hurry up okay this is like something that a lot of teachers might struggle with because it makes your room seem busy or chaotic or like you're not in control allow for standing and room for movement some kids some people have to move around um, for various reasons. Our classrooms don't have to look perfect. And if that 
Like, my Annie has to get up and she has to go to the bathroom. And I mean, sometimes, yeah, my kids are like, Annie, move, move. We're trying to see a movie. <laughs> She'll now move to the side. Um, but she just has to stand up. So I'm, you know, I don't sit at the front of the church. I'm not looking to be the spotlight. Um, but it's okay if she's standing at the back and we're comfortable and I'm just kind of, you know. Um, so the same can be in your classrooms. Just allow for that movement. If that person has to move around, chances are they're gonna learn something better. And when other kids ask you, well, how come she gets to move around and I don't? I just want you to keep this little phrase in mind. And maybe you wouldn't say this to a six-year-old, but fairness is not about everyone getting the same. It's about everyone getting what they need. And that's not my quote. <laughs> but that is a quote that I think, oh my gosh, that is so true. Fairness is not about everyone getting what um, getting the same. It's about everyone getting what they need. And I believe the, um, the guy who said that, his last name is Lavoy. And if you want to look him up on YouTube, he has some amazing videos. L-A-V-O-I-E is his name. So basically, I would say that to kids. I'll say, you know what? She just needs to stand up. And you're OK to sit down and um, make your lesson a little shorter, maybe, or something. I don't know. OK, so moving on. A third thing you can do is uh, give them, th thank a child for, or a person for their positive contributions and give them encouragement. So if they sat for five whole minutes of your circle time or whatever it was and you noticed that and you thought, wow, they were really trying really hard, make sure you tell them because everyone likes to know that they're doing a good job. And just let them know that you noticed that. The fourth thing I would say is actually teach them. So obviously we model this kind of behavior, but teach them specific ways to get your attention. So if they're constantly interrupting you, you know, maybe just like at some point or sometime in your class, just say, you know what, hey, if you guys want to get my attention, just tap me on the leg or just wait until the end of the lesson or you know, come sit close to me, but just maybe not interrupt everybody. So, and you can tell all the kids that, maybe you're only directing it to one child. <laughs> um, but you can, you can model that as well. So you move close to them, you tap them on the shoulder when, instead of always like speaking, uh, looking in their eyes just to see if they're gonna pay attention to you. Another strategy you can use is, um, Basically, try to figure out why this person is displaying inappropriate behaviors. What function are they serving for that person? That might be kind of hard to figure out, um, but it goes into this next, uh, kind of overlaps with this next strategy. Another thing, it'll I'll explain it in this next one. So consider their peer relationships. Does this person actually have friends? How big is the class? Is it overwhelming for them? Is the setup too busy? Is the paint on the walls too much? Is there too many things going on? Maybe something happened prior to them coming to your class. Maybe you have to ask the parents, did anything happen? Were they upset in the car? Or did they eat? Um, that's sometimes a problem, right? Um, and 
and the transitions. Was the transition from big church, I don't know if you do go in the big church for worship time, walking down, something happened on the way. And maybe that child's not going to be able to tell you, but if you sort of think what happened, there might be a reason why they're displaying inappropriate behavior. Something else you can do that people often do in schools is actually to provide uh, structure and routine. And I don't know how well you can see that. This is something from a very liturgical church. But it's actually, so this is um, a PEC system where they actually, those are little Velcro pictures and they can, once that thing is done, they move that from this board to that board and some kids really, especially kids with autism, they really like to see that progression. Now we're here, now we're here, this is what's next. They need to know, not all kids with autism need that, but some really do and it helps them immensely. So that is something you can have set up if you need to in your classroom. Something else to do, which I'm sure we all do, I used to just say plan to ignore annoying behaviors. Um, but you can actually pray about this too and ask God for patience and for wisdom in dealing with things or managing things. Because you know how many times people have said to me, oh my gosh, I can't stand those VTAC toys and those leapfrog toys and they just drive me crazy and they're so noisy. And I'm like, I've had those toys in my house for 18 years. <laughs> and yes, I'm a little tired of Barney and the Wiggles and Pills on Kids. But I have to get over it. And I mean, Annie just learned how to increase the volume on the iPad, which I'm like, oh no. Um, but I just go over and I turn it down and you know what? Somehow I have survived this long and you do get sort of over it. And don't get sucked into always saying something because sometimes they are just looking for your attention or somebody's attention or they just really have the need to move and talk and whatever. Um, so you don't always want to address it on the spot. Okay. Oh, did I skip one? Oh, I'm missing number nine on here. I don't know how that happened. Hmm. Okay. Well, is it in yours? It says use proximity control. Yeah. Does anyone know what that is? It's a big word. Um, some of you probably know what it is. This is something, uh, this is an easy thing. You can just move close to them when they're <laughs> jumping up and down and you're just like, hey buddy, you know, and, and something about your body just coming closer sometimes is calming. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they run away from you or, um, but you can try that. Okay, and use touch control. I know you have to be careful with this with Plan to Protect all that. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to touch them at all, even on the forearm or something, but some kids, especially like one of my girls, she really comes close to me. She never, Audrey never comes close to me, except for when, when we're sleeping. And um, I know for her, she's probably feeling some kind of seizure activity. So that's her in particular, but um, she, she needs like a tight squeeze. Either she's going to whack me over the head 
or I'm going to say, do you need a hug? Do you need a hug? And I'm hoping she'll go for the hug and not hit me. And she often does. She actually likes that deep pressure. So obviously you have to use that in different ways. That's okay. Okay, use humor, but never sarcasm or ridicule. So that seems, uh, seems like an easy one. Okay, so discipline and discuss privately. Obviously we talked about this already with um, being confidential, but you just want to make sure that if, if there is something, sometimes you don't have to address it right in that moment. And this, this is something as parents we learn when our kids transition from being like four and all of a sudden they're 14 and I'm still going, don't talk that way to me. <laughs> You're so rude and whatever. And I'm just like, actually, it's probably better if I wait till all his friends are gone and then sit down and go, you know what? That wasn't, that wasn't nice. And, or they come to me and apologize. Okay, so one other thing I wanted to mention is that keep in mind when interacting with people with social deficits, and that can be for a number of reasons, they often can't change. And so it's up to us to either change the environment or change our own attitudes or responses to them as we leave them. So an idea I'd like to introduce to you has to do with ramps. This is kind of a wordy little thing here, and I'm just going to touch on it for a second. But I'm going to talk about first, when we think of ramps, we think of um, wheelchairs, right? And all the things that we do for people with mobility issues. We widen the doorways, we put in a lift, we make sure there's signs uh, for parking, we build ramps. And all of that is, it, is to help people be able to get into a place and function, get around a building. So in order to help people in our churches become more accepting and more involved in the lives of people with disabilities, there's this idea that we can build a social ramp. So what does that mean? So I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. Um, I'm just going to tell you kind of what it means. Basically, we're making the environment become more understanding, more inclusive, and hopefully less discriminatory. So what exactly does that mean? So these are ways that we can build social ramps. So right now, we are on a social ramp because you're providing training to your leaders about how to do disability ministry. Or um, there's, So there's different things. You can go to conferences. You can find good resources. You can have a speaker come in and tell their family their personal story um, just to help the congregation kind of understand. Maybe there's people in your, well, there's most likely people in your congregation who grew up without people in the mainstream of society um, who have disabilities. You can have a disability awareness day or a, uh, my church, they had me come in to do a kids ministry night where I went and I talked about our story and the main idea I wanted to get to the kids was that everybody fits. So that's the name of that talk. And in that they get to go around to different uh, set up stations where they can experience what it's like to be nonverbal, uh, to be blind, to have a physical impairment, 
uh, there's all different sort of things that they get to do and they sort of realize, oh, and then they get to have a question and answer time with me and they get to ask me anything and one kid asked me, what's autism? And I was like, uh, for a five-year-old, how do I explain that? So I actually embedded a video into my presentation now, a two-minute Muppet video explaining autism to children, which is amazing, actually. Better than I could have explained it. So basically, I did say to him, it's just people see the world in a different way. That's about what I could get out. Um, anyway, so these are all ways that we make it easier for the congregation, for people who don't have people with disabilities in their world, to become more comfortable, more uh, accommodating, more understanding. Because it's really quite um, understandable that they're not if they didn't grow up with people in their midst. Okay, so moving on. Some practical things you can do. This is, uh, looks a little different than this now, but this is, you can actually create a calming down room. Call it whatever you want, alternative worship environment. <laughs> Exceptional needs room, there's all these different, um, I know in schools, I think it's called alternative learning environment, so the ALE room. Um, schools have little acronyms for everything. So you can call it whatever you want. Um, for us, it's it's actually still a place that moms and, or dads and babies can come, and I just warn them, by the way, Annie might be laying out here, so <laughs> she's five foot nine. Um, but it's it's been fine. It's very, very uh, useful. So there's often people who just need a space where they can calm down, get away from the sensory overload, and this is really, really helpful. So I've also brought something else you can do, is you can have fidget toys, bubbles, there's a bunch of little things over there. If your kids are getting bored, they can go and like pick up some fidget toys if they want. <laughs> they seem very, very happy and quiet though. Um, so there's things that you can have on hand, and all the ones I have over there, I do have some real fidget toys, and I ordered them online and put them in a very, very safe place. Because don't know where they are. Um, I keep thinking, they're going to turn up, they're going to turn up. We just did a major basement renovation. Yes, fidget spinners. I know, I should have got some for my son. He's 16. He has like 16 of them. Um, but there's a bunch of things that I just got from the dollar store even because sometimes they just, they'll walk away and you don't want, some of them can be a little expensive. Um, so you can just find whatever works and have them on hand. Something else you can have on hand is um, noise reducing headphones. You know one church that has them hanging at the back of their youth um, church, they have, it's a big church, so they have like youth church and it's really loud and there's some people with disabilities that go and they can't handle it and so they just pick up a pair off the back and, and uh, away they go. So something else you can do is you can develop a buddy program. And I don't know, do you guys have that at all here? You're working on it, okay. And really anybody who I guess like my oldest daughter is in that picture with Annie and she's probably like 13, I think, in that picture. I mean, she's naturally their buddy, but they don't have to be a certain age or be a TA in the school board or have any kind of training. Obviously, you would provide some basic leadership training, but um, I mean, there are lots of kids that 
want to be around my kids. And they're smaller, they're younger than them, some are the same age, they've grown up with them. Um, so a buddy program is a really, really effective thing you can do. Another thing you can do is develop a parent support group. Um, this is sort of happening in my church, it's just kind of happened um, organically, but that is something else you can do if you find you have parents. And sometimes it just needs to be a coffee break. It doesn't need to be like a Bible study or something. They just need time to talk to each other, for the most part. Okay, and for recreational activities, you just always want to keep in mind, um, ask a few questions. Are, when you're planning an event or an activity, are there any physical restrictions that need adapting for a person in a wheelchair? Is the location accessible? Are extra volunteers needed to help with someone uh, who has disabilities so that they can be included in the activity? Because they might actually need like a one-on-one -on -one worker. So just whatever you plan, if you think about how that plan might exclude or include someone with a disability, whether they're there yet or not. Okay, so let's move on to some tips for teaching and including people with disabilities in your class. And here I'm going to focus, um, well the key here is that you believe everyone can learn and they can communicate in some way or another. Okay, so here I'm going to focus on some specific disabilities and how you can teach and include people with those disabilities. So a physical disability, I'm not going to go through all the the different things, but basically you want to provide a safe environment with some freedom to move around. If there's someone in a wheelchair, you're in a little extra space. Uh, allow a little more time to transition. So if you're going, out, I don't know if you have a park nearby or if you play outside at all in the summertime, but um, you might have to give a little time because that person might need to use the wheelchair lift or whatever. Plan tactile learning activities. Maybe you already do that. Lots of kids like that. Finger paint, water playing, different things. Something I heard actually one time was for a blind student, um, the pastor or the, the teacher um, was teaching about the fleece, Gideon, the, the fleece, and they brought in like like some kind of lambskin or fur or whatever, and they said, and so you have, I mean, all the kids would love that, right? So it's just making it a little bit more um, more able for that person to be involved and to participate. Um, adapt the games and crafts to their level of participation and be age appropriate. I'm going to say that a lot and I'll explain why after I tell you to modify things. <laughs> Seems like counterintuitive. Um, okay, so tips for teaching and including people with a developmental disorder. And developmental disorder kind of means uh, like psychiatric disorders, which um, include autism, uh, global development delay, conduct disorder, mood disorders, all those kind of personality disorders. So someone with these kind of disorders may need you to go a little more slowly when you're introducing new activities to their routine. They might need that quiet space for breaks. Encourage social interaction. Uh, because they may lack some of those social skills. So you might actually have to say, hey, this is, and, and introduce them and say, he needs a buddy to sit with. And you know, you kind of micromanage that a little bit. 
Uh, and as a leader or a buddy, you want to be really faithful because they may really bond with you and expect you to be there. Obviously, we have things that happen in life and that can't always happen. And also be age appropriate. Okay, so another tip for teaching and including some tips for someone with a learning disability. And learning disabilities can include, maybe you guys already know these things, um, but it's sort of things like dyslexia, auditory processing disorder, language processing disorder, someone who's nonverbal has a learning disability, ADHD, there's all these things that maybe you've never even heard of them. Visual perception, visual motor deficit, dyscalculia, which I think I have that because it's difficulty understanding math. <laughs> like, actually, I think I might have that. Um, not kidding. Uh, dysag what's this one called? Dysgraphia. Teachers probably know that. Um, that is actually like a writing disorder. Someone has an impaired handwriting disability and um, physically might have a hard time. So when you're when you're teaching and you want everyone to write something down, this might just make that person sort of be like, I'm never coming back. Um, so you want to review your lessons with with drawing maybe or painting or let's make something. Uh, use your hands and eyes to give guidance and not harsh words. Provide opportunities for the person to touch, to move around, to do things. Um, Help them channel their energy into appropriate activities. And again, you want to be age appropriate. Okay, the last one, no, second last one, um, is for tips for teaching and including someone with an intellectual impairment. Now, my twins fall under the one above that we just talked about and this one. They fall into a few different categories. Um, but this is basically someone who has a significant limitation in intellectual functioning. So reasoning, learning, problem solving, those kind of things, um, and adaptive behavior. So social and practical skills. Um, my girls don't do anything really for themselves uh, as far as self-care. Well, they can take their clothes off. <laughs> That's about it. Um, but they are learning and I'm seeing progress, which I'm excited about. So you want to respond to their developmental level, not their age. So all along I've been saying be age appropriate. Um, however, there are times where you do need to make things uh, you know, more at their level so they can participate. And really what I mean by saying those two things, they seem opposite. But what I mean is, okay, so this lady is, um, I think she's painting like a birdhouse or something. But to me, that looks pretty age-appropriate for an adult. I don't see pictures of Barney on the wall or, you know, she's not painting pictures of the Wiggles or, I know, Barney and Wiggles, that's all I hear. Um, <laughs> but just things like that, so they can still, she's doing a craft, which might be something that a younger person or child would do, although everybody's into Pinterest these days, right? And everybody's painting everything with chalk paint whatever um, so it's just like you're finding something that they can do but making it look still age-appropriate for them and that's all I mean by that so you want to show and don't tell them what to do necessarily the instructions might be a little difficult if they're verbal 
simplify the learning activities and use repetition. Expect proper behavior and praise them often. Be firm and loving and be age appropriate. Okay, this is the last one. Tips for teaching and including people with visual and hearing impairments. And the only reason I put these together is because I wanted to put that one sentence at the top for both. Uh, don't assume they have limited intelligence. Um, I hear this from my deaf friends, and I have a few, and a friend who's blind, people often think, and actually, there was a deaf lady and a visually impaired lady, both in my master's program. And so, obviously, they don't have limited intelligence. Um, that's not to say some people don't have a dual diagnosis, or triple, or multiple, like my kids. They don't happen to have these impairments, but um, that's why I wanted to put them so for a hearing impaired or deaf person, uh, and there's a few different people that fall under this category, I won't get too into that. Capital D is someone who identifies as deaf and hard of hearing or hearing impaired are people who maybe don't identify that way. Um, not everyone understands sign language, but you may have to hire a sign language interpreter. I have actually, the, the girl who is in my class is deaf and she, her church actually just made some cuts and they cut the sign language interpreter. So she actually can't go to her home church right now um, because she can't hear anything. I talked about that in my new articles coming out in June, July, July, August issue. <laughs> um, which is really, really sad, right? And it's a bit of an investment, I know. Our church actually has had a deaf ministry for ever since I went there. so. 17 years I've seen people signing at the front and people listening and understanding in the congregation and that um, group of people has grown because people know we have that so something else that's very important is the lighting so if you have a sign language interpreter you have to have your lights up because they can't see the interpreter usually um, have the person sit directly in front of of the teacher if they're maybe they're able to lip read if they're hard of hearing and speak very clearly using normal speed um, okay and visually impaired so this is something that i don't know if many churches do this i know some churches do it they have large print bibles on hand maybe everybody brings their own or has big font now i guess you can that's kind of handy on your phone um, and large lessons or worksheets uh, for maybe a child who has a visual impairment, you can just blow it up for them. Use sensory items again for illustrations, have lessons, or Bible song sheets in Braille. That's pretty... Um, but there are ways you can do that. School boards often have Braillers, and you can actually... Um, I don't know anyone, actually, myself, who can read Braille. This is... Um, Something else you can do with someone who's blind is you always say your name when you're greeting them. So there's a man who I know, he's a pastor, and he sits on this disability support network with me, and I know him, and he knows me, but every time I am with him in person, I just say, hey, Danny, it's Andrea. He's like, oh, hey, hey, and he sticks his hand out, and I direct him, I'm over here, and um, and that it's 
it seems odd because we don't normally do that. And I'm a person who likes to know people's names. So I always, I always say to people, what's your name? And not so far tonight, I met Tiffany. Right, Tiffany? <laughs> and I, I like to know people's names. So maybe it's not that odd for me, but you just always tell them who you are. And I never assume people know who I am because really, I don't look the same as did in high school and so if it's somebody from high school they're very nice sometimes they go oh you haven't changed a bit I'm like, yeah okay that's nice and something else to do with um, someone with a visual impairment is you never assume that they want your assistance by sort of grabbing the arm that's really not not good <laughs> And you also ask them, you can offer your arm and say, um, can I assist you or are you okay on your own? And they might say yes, and my friend Peggy will say, oh, I'd like you to be on my right side. Because she likes to hold on with her right hand. Um, and so that's just a little bit of a tip for that. Okay, frequently asked questions. So these are questions that um, we all want to ask. And kids usually ask. So I just put them, put a few frequently asked questions in here. Okay, so what if I can't understand him or her? The first thing I would say is don't pretend to understand. Ask them to repeat themselves or act out what they want. So, or point. Point to symbols around the room. Do you want a coffee? Like they might be grunting at you or something and you really are not getting it. You can even just say, you know what, I'm not get, getting it. I don't know what you're trying to tell me, but I'm really trying to understand. And maybe even, this has happened to me because there's a man in my church who I have a very hard time understanding. And I asked someone nearby who knows him better than me. And I said, what is he trying to say to me? I don't understand. And then they tell me. And so, um, again, the more time I spend with him, and we have coffee like every week, after church, the more I do understand him. And I'm just honest with him if I don't. So don't, the key here is don't give up trying to understand. Okay, okay I covered all that. Persevere, keep trying to understand, don't give up. Okay, oh, this is a good thing. It's more often that we bring awkwardness to the situation than they do okay so what is wrong with him or her here's another frequently asked question kids usually will ask this and this happened to me when Annie and Audrey were about five or six so they were looking pretty big to be in a stroller and I had special strollers for them at the time and a little four-year-old girl was like eh, like talking away to her and Annie was not even looking at her I don't think and she's talking away and she looks at me and she's like, is she pretending to be a baby? <laughs> and I'm like, because uh, she's in a stroller, right? And she's like six. And I was said, ah, well, and I started giving her this big long explanation that I, I'm fumbling over my words and she kind of looked at me like, she goes, no, she's pretending to be a baby. <laughs> okay, let's go with that. So I learned from that not to give a long explanation. Obviously, you want to be age appropriate, but it's okay that they're asking. Um, because children wonder. We all wonder, I think. Children just ask. And I don't, 
you don't ever want to make them feel like it's shameful for them to wonder or to ask because chances are they might just be, be asking because maybe they're drawn to that person. Maybe they want to be their friend with, if it's another child or whatever and they just don't really know how to, to bridge that gap. So it could be that they're just actually drawn to them. So another thing um, about that is basically explain and encourage them. It's okay. So, so something you can say is he's just a bit upset right now. So if someone's like freaking out or you know having a meltdown and the kids are like, oh, what's going on? What's wrong with her or him? Um, you can just say, you know what? He just might need a little time to be quiet by himself in the calming down room. But I'm really glad that you're asking because it shows that you're a good friend, and and that might help them understand. Okay, so this next one, how do I teach God's word? So I would say music, visuals, sensory, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> A lot of it, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, right? So we choose songs with repetitive choruses. This is pretty much common sense, like we do for any kids. Uh, use picture charts to emphasize the words, add rhythm instruments marches, sign language, just for fun. Um, be aware that some people might just want to listen. They might not want to sing. Or maybe they're nonverbal and they can't sing. Have those noise-reducing headphones available. Use props for a blind person. And allow the person, a deaf person might actually want to sit really close to the speakers and actually even feel them if they can. Um, okay, so perhaps one of the most frequently asked questions is what do I do if a person is violent? So probably the most important thing is to be prepared. Um, hopefully a parent would disclose that. I'm a very open parent. I tell them everything there is to know um, if I think they need to know it. If my daughters aren't really having aggressive issues right then, I don't tend to disclose that necessarily if they don't need to know. And parents will often not tell you everything because they're really worried that you're going to tell them not to come back. So you can uh, consult with professional workers. There might be DSWs or EAs or group home workers in your, in your uh, community. I know some churches have actually hired TAs, EAs, whatever you call them, um, to come in on Sunday mornings. Sometimes they're not even Christians. They're just professionals. I know there's a little controversy with that. But they have expertise in violence prevention, and um, they know how to handle those situations. And you need that if that is a situation. You have protocols in place. You have security on call. I know one church that has walkie-talkies. Most people have cell phones now, um, but sometimes a walkie-talkie is, is faster and easier, and nobody's walkie-talkie dies like a phone. Uh, you have to have parents sign waivers, so you can use hands-on if necessary. Um, and you can explain that to your other leaders and church people and say, you know what, we, we figured that out. What you're seeing over there is actually okay. Um, because you do have to protect the other children. And so there's things you can do. Okay, as we now come into the last little part, I'm just going to give you a few quick don'ts, and maybe I've kind of already covered some of these. Um, but don't draw attention to a person's disability. Most of us wouldn't do that anyway. Don't
neglect a person's dislikes or fears because they may really not like going on swings. And we all think the swings are fun, but they may hate the swings and you're just like, keep trying to coax them over there or whatever. I, I don't even know if you have a park nearby, but we do at our church. Um, okay, and something else, don't overly control or protect them. You see that boy there, he's totally wrapped up in bubble wrap. <laughs> uh, don't take rejection personally. Don't use harsh words such as cripple, retard, dumb, dingling, crazy, idiot, special, or angel. And I hate saying all those words, but those are some words that we hear a lot. We hear the word crazy for everything. Everything is crazy all the time. And I'm just like, oh, maybe we need to find a different word, like wild or intense. I don't know. Don't tolerate any teasing of other students. Uh, and, and you know what? I heard somebody talk about this the other day, and it was a mom, and she was really upset. She was sad because an older boy had put um, something on his phone and he held it up, an L, the letter L, and he held it up to another boy's head who had uh, some delays and was unaware of what the older boy was doing, but the boy was 13. And so I even said to her, you know, I know you're saying that he should know better, but maybe he's just trying to somehow connect with him. Or maybe this is a teaching moment and you don't want to scare him away and be like, ah, because all, we all do stupid things. We all, um, even kids, especially kids at that age, they just do things and they're like, I know, I, I don't know why I did that. And so we gotta have a little grace with them and sure we've taught them all the, the right things and the ways to be nice to people, but um, it could be a catalyst for that person being that person's friend. You never know. Okay, so don't stereotype or label. That's pretty obvious. And I just wanna say one, okay, these are my final thoughts. I just want to um, talk a little bit about befriending. So we want to teach people in our congregation how to become friends with people with intellectual disabilities, especially. Um, and we want to encourage this. And I think the way we do that is to go beyond uh, acceptance and help people to see those people as people who need Jesus. So kids always um, say to me, well, how can I, how can I be his friend? He has a teacher or a TA, a helper, and I said, you know what, go to that TA and ask them, what does he like to do? How can I be that guy's friend? Or whatever. So I think if we just see people as, like everyone needs Jesus, everyone needs friends, everyone needs the church, in my opinion. And spend time with people who are unlike you, as awkward and as different as it might feel at first, um, you may find a new friend in a place you didn't expect. And something else I want to just say about human experience. Life is about human experiences. And as a mom, I've had to learn this, that I can't protect my girls from everything. Um, I can't bubble wrap them. I can't. And that is just part of life. I don't know everything that happens in their day at school. But I have to trust and believe that the people that are there with them, the teachers, the TAs, they're doing their best, and if something is wrong, they're going to let me know, and we're going to work through it together. 
um, encourage people with disabilities to be part of a group, a small group, choir. I know not too many churches have choirs, but I would like bring back the choir, or at least have like a worship night or something. I know one little Anglican church I spoke at one time, she said, we have this worship Wednesday night, and everybody comes, and they actually did it at this retreat. We all sat in this circle, and these women all brought up these like little instruments, and everybody just like played different instruments that they wanted to play, and it was like the most beautiful experience, and it wasn't really rehearsed. Everybody just kind of worshiped however, and so they do that every week or every other week or something. And that's for anybody. It's not just for people with disabilities, but that is a place where it can really draw people together. Nobody has to plan a Bible study or anything. You just get together and, well, it's nice if somebody plays a piano or a guitar or something, but you don't even need that. Um, okay, and grow a thick skin. If you're gonna be in this, well, you probably already know that if you're in any kind of leadership. Um, you can't take things personally, especially if someone has a cognitive disability. They're probably not, well, maybe they don't like you, but you never know. Um, sometimes, everyone has times. My girls have lots of times where they don't want to engage with me. And they're like, no, Annie says, finished, all done, and I'm like, okay, just let her be alone. Um, so we just need to sort of not take it so personally. And a final word, all churches are as different as the people in them. You'll need to try different things to see if they work or they don't work. Uh, don't give up. Even if something seemingly fails, there will be a new thing to try and God will honor your passion and your perseverance. And listen to other people's ideas. There's no bad ideas. They might not all turn out to be uh, something you're going to implement, but you never know. Uh, keep praying for your own leaders, for each other. Uh, talk to each other if you're having struggles or difficulties. Um, you can help each other out and navigate through them. Prayer is really essential to any ministry being successful, as I'm sure you know. And finally, remember, it's more than accommodation. It's about embrace. It's about finding a place of belonging for every person. A place where they belong, but also where they can serve as well. And above all else, love. We are the church, and the church is the place where everybody fits and everyone belongs. And that's it.
I love you, and this is where you belong. We need everybody to be a part of this. So thank you for that, and thank you, Andrea, just for everything that you have shared and encouraged us by, um, sometimes this can be daunting, but I don't feel that was necessary at all. I just thank you that you were just so real, so open with your story, so vulnerable, but just so willing to just say, we have these promises. So let's hold on to those promises that God has, um, not only for us, but especially for those families. So I just forgot one thing that I always mean to say. Um, please connect with me. If you have any questions, or my website, I think, is on the bottom of that, but my email, I don't know if I put my email. I can give you my card if you want. Um, but email me. Text me, call me, whatever you want. Um, I'm here as a resource for you guys. I don't necessarily know all the um, practical resources in your community, but sometimes they're very similar um, as far as helping parents or whoever navigate. Um, and I just actually, can I just pray for you and for you guys? Um, I just meant to do that, sorry. I was gonna close in prayer. Well, maybe you're gonna close in prayer, but. I just want to pray for you as you start this uh, this journey, this new beginning, and I'm so excited that you guys are all here. You um, have no idea how encouraging it really is. So let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you're here with us tonight and that you have given Ashley and many leaders who are here tonight and who some are not here tonight. You've given them uh, this this passion and this desire to uh, to step out in faith, step out of their comfort zone, and to really follow uh, the leading of your Holy Spirit into an unknown sort of territory, but a place where uh, we know that that you are, and that you want to see us go out into the country lanes and the the side roads and bring people in and seek people out so that your house will be full. And I just pray a blessing over this church and the people who are in it, the leaders, the children, the youth, um, the seniors. God, I just pray that there would be unity as this new uh, sort of idea unfolds the way that you want it to unfold. And I just pray um, for the, the difficult things that are going to come up and the questions that arise and the, even the people who speak out against it, God. I just pray that uh, you would just give Ashley and her leadership team and the elders and the pastors and staff, that you would just give them uh, boldness and encourage to do this ministry that you have long ago laid out and planned. And Jesus, I pray all these things in your precious name. Father, we just thank you so much for Andrea. Father, we thank you for the time that she's committed, not just to being here physically tonight, but the investment that she's made in her education and learning, Father, and her preparations for tonight. And just the day in, day out uh, challenges, passion, and love that she has. Father. So we just pray that as she goes home tonight, they give her traveling safety. And that, Father, you just increase this ministry that she has. That you bless it. That you just increase her influence many times over. Father, you've stirred the passion in her that is just so evident. That is so beautiful. So contagious. And we just ask that you 
continue to provide an outlet for that, that you continue to provide hungry and open hearts, Father, that you continue to open churches, open places of ministry that she can just come and share her experience, her heart, her vision, Father, your compassion that just flows through it, that that can be shared and not just invested in others. So we just thank you for the time. We ask you to bless her, protect her, and just for her family, Father, that you would just bless them with extra energy, extra rest, Father, just supernatural rest that comes beyond anything, any physical sleep or rest that can come, that you would just restore their spiritual and emotional their physical health in every single way that you would just surround them and protect their household. So we just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name. So if you have any questions, the floor is now open and be sure to check out some of the resources that are over there. So, yeah. Questions? You want to talk? Or Otherwise, this is officially it. So questions are good, but then you're great to go. I know it sounds weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. I guess it's not. That's not so much a harsh word. I guess. Um, I know my mom says that all the time. Um, I guess for me, I used to see my kids as, or I hear people say, "Oh, they're angels unaware," or you know that sort of kind of thinking. And not that it's a bad thing. It's just that um, I don't think they're actually angels. I think they're just human beings. <laughs> And so for me, it's like, uh, it's not harsh. I guess I shouldn't really list it under there, but it's kind of like, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I don't see them that way. And so it's kind of like, no, they're just, they're just Danny and Audrey, and you know, like, um, and I guess we don't. I guess in history, people were either put on a pedestal, like they were angels. Or otherworldly, almost. Or then it kind of became that they were a curse and they were criminals, or they were, you know, it was sort of went from one to the other, one extreme to the other. So that's kind of where that comes from. Is um, I'm explaining that though. It dehumanizes. It dehumanizes. They are. My brain turns to make something that is may sound like positive, may sound positive, right? But. You're right. It, that's exactly what it does. It dehumanizes them. Yes, thank you for jumping. <laughs> no, no. You're right. I, I'm just like, why did I put you in there? Um, yeah, because really, they they aren't that, right? So, and uh, like I said, it's just difficult, too. Like, we're made in the image of God and not in the image of angels. Right. Like, angels are a different uh, creation. Right. We're a different creation. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I know. My mom is one of the ones. I mean, that's my mom. She's amazing, and she's still one of my biggest supporters and helps, and thankfully she can still help. Um, I think they love her more than me, actually. <laughs> um, but she she will sometimes say, and I mean, you don't know my mom, but she will often say she's seventy, right? And she'll say like, oh well, she, there's. She likes to talk to people wherever, right? She likes to tell them that she has these special granddaughters. And and just because she does, she likes to help people and she likes to connect with them and have this common ground or whatever, but I'm like, Mom, that's just not saying that they're a special 
or they're special. Or I'm like, I know they have. They also I'll just say to her, Mama, person with special needs. Oh, you saw someone with autism, or like so. We kind of joke about it, but it is a hard habit to break.